Hello and welcome. You are listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled, Talking Your Way Out of Disaster, Operationalizing Crisis Comms. In this episode, we will be discussing why your communications team needs a closer relationship to operations and tackling questions like how do you prepare messaging while maintaining agility and when is and is not an appropriate time to use humor. To this end, we'll be speaking with Shauna Bruce about her experiences in crisis comms and what she would have done differently during the pandemic with the benefit of hindsight. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Well, if the pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that presentation of data and risk information is everything. From the struggle to even find an appropriate name for variants, to training the public on the difference between isolation and quarantine, it truly has been a response defined by communication strategies and pitfalls. Recognizing this, and in the spirit of EP Week and communicating risk, we touched base with Shauna Bruce for some tips and tricks on communicating effectively during crisis. But before we begin, there are a couple of acronyms and contextual pieces to review so that the interview makes sense. First of all, NATE is the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. CADEM is the Center for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management. And there's a reference to a Mr. COVID or COVID head commercial. Now this commercial aired in Alberta and it basically showed a large COVID shaped mascot interacting with people and spreading COVID. So all of the negative activities that are associated with COVID spread. So with that in mind, and without any further ado, I give you an interview with Shauna Bruce. My name is Shauna Bruce, and I am a risk and crisis communicator, at least that's my passion. I started to come around to understanding more about risk and crisis during my time in the military. I was an Army Public Affairs Officer for about 27 years, and then I went over and worked at Dow Chemical as their National Public Affairs Advisor, and I did a lot of outreach to communities about emergency management and risk during that time. And now I run my own uh, consulting business, and I work with teams to get them prepared for the next crisis and I teach part-time at NATE in the disaster and emergency management program as well as at CATEM in the continuing ed side of the house. Shauna, thank you so much for joining us. We are meeting on the heels of the emergency management uh, summit that was put on by NATE and you did a talk there and one of the topics that I think we could definitely delve into a little bit deeper is this idea of communications as a operational tool during disaster. So my question for you is, is communications an operational tool or is it just a necessary evil of uh, disaster management? Well, I like to think it's the former. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I, I take some time to speak with incident commanders and operators that are managing uh, different disasters and crises to sort of outline to them that communications is absolutely operational. And if you have a, a good communications team, if you resource them well, you bring in trained people that have practiced, you know, in a crisis environment, because regular communications and crisis communications are very different, uh, then you are in a situation where you have people that are championing your objectives. You know, you can use communications to reach your operational objectives. Absolutely. And an example of that might be, you know, if you're evacuating 
a, a community, right? And you want people to take certain roads somewhere, this type of thing. You need to clear an area. The, those guys on the ground and the gals on the ground are looking for you to, to make an area clear. Well, how do you think you're getting that information to the public? It's, it's through communications mediums, right? And so I think sometimes we think of communications as the add-on, but you need to have those communicators at the table while you're building the plan and work them right into how they can get that communications to support your operational objectives. So linking communications to operations a little bit more. I want to expand on a couple of things you said there. The training for incident commanders, that triggered something for me because usually in that incident organization, there's a siloed off to the side public communications officer that quote unquote manages public communications. Is that effective and what needs to change if not? Well, I think you, need, you definitely need a public information officer that has the training and experience to work in an ICS here in Alberta, for sure, or a crisis environment. But more to that, you need a team. One PIO cannot manage all the communications that's required. You need to be building a communications team that is there to support what's happening in that emergency operations center or emergency coordination center, what needs to go out internally to audiences, externally, and all that follow on with social media. Social media is almost needs a team of its own these days to manage. So absolutely, it's it has those folks, if you're looking at ICS, and you're really truly, you know, using the ICS model, your public information officer has a seat at the table, they report to the incident commander, that's where they need to be. It's not a follow on. They are part of that critical um, sort of nucleus of people that are making decisions and they need to be at the table. The other thing you mentioned was the difference between crisis communications and regular communications. I've tried to delve into this before and I've never really got a good answer. What is the difference other than urgency? Well, I think in everyday communications, you have the luxury of time. Right. So when you talk about urgency, absolutely. When you think about if uh, if Alberta Health Services was rolling out a strategic plan for for something, maybe new health records or something, you have time to consider all the options. You have time to test theories. You have the time to to actually create a plan. Think about both sides of the decision making cycle, et cetera, et cetera. But in a crisis, sometimes you're already responding after the crisis is erupted on social media. You have to make decisions on the fly. You, you have to run with the information you have and the information you verified because you won't have the full picture right at the onset of the crisis before you start communicating. So there's very different uh, elements to that. And so, so my point is, is that if you're working and your day job is supporting writing messages for the mayor or the minister, and then all of a sudden you're pulled into an emergency operations center environment and you're being told, I need key messages like five minutes ago, that's a different mindset. And you need to understand understand how to write with brevity, how to write with all of those things we teach you in crisis communications, and how to support your team in that operations, operational cycle on the emergency management side. And it is different. So you can't just pull pluck someone out of here and throw them over there and expect them to perform well. Do you have any pearls or pitfalls when it comes to that crisis mode of, of communication? Well, I, I love message maps and I love templates. And when I sort of work with teams to build their crisis communications plan, we go through all the different risks that could impact their organizations and we create message maps for them. And then we create uh, templates and holding 
statements that, you know, I had someone you know, sort of challenge me saying, Shauna, there's no way you can reply to a crisis in 30 minutes. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, you can. If you have a holding statement that's on your phone that doesn't say anything except the fact this is the Acme Chemical Company and we're responding to an incident and more details will follow, you can absolutely get that out there. But you've started the communication process and you're taking accountability so people will know where to come back to to get, you know, trusted, incredible information. Tell me more about that message map. That sounds like almost a, a HRVA for your comms team. Well, you know, well, Vincent Cavallo came out with a message map with risk communications quite a number of years ago, and it's had various renditions ever since. Um, he sort of taught it a different, a little bit differently than I, I like to. I, it's basically having each key message, three key messages to walk in with, and each key message has three supporting statements. And your entire message is only 30 words. So the idea is to give you a soundbite for media, but also in today's application, it gives you sort of your tweets or your posts for social media. It's keeping, it's not giving people the exact dialogue when they're doing a media interview, but it gives them all the key bullet points that they need to cover. And, and say that you're in a situation where the crisis has, you know, seven or eight different entities, RCMP, AHS, the mayor, you can be using a message map and that will help keep people on the same message. So they don't have, they don't deviate from the core bullet points that you want to convey the core information. What happens when they do? Well, that's, you know, that's also the PIOs or the public information officer's job is to step up and try to put everything back in the box. But a message map, I think, helps you manage the narrative. And I, I don't like to use the word control, but it does help you control the narrative to a degree because everyone is using the same information and, um, and that. So the idea is to try to stick to a message map when you can or having key holding statements having templates ready in advance, even, even things like your news release. I know this sounds crazy, but when I worked at Dow Chemical, we would get a new boilerplate at the bottom of our news release every six months, right? And information would change, logos change, make sure you've got a good template in your plan with everything in there. So all you have to do is fill out the blank, fill in the blanks. Well, let's make this real. We're in the middle of the largest public communication or just communication nightmare imaginal with COVID-19. If you were to do things differently, uh, you know, hindsight 2020, what would you suggest? Where have we ex excelled? What do we need to change? Well, if we look first at a national level, you know, Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry wrote actually a crisis communication plan for pandemics back in 2019 when she chaired the committee for pandemics here in Canada. And we, we basically threw that out the window, right? I recognize that we are provincially driven on the health front, but this crisis needed a national voice. If I were doing this, if I'd had the opportunity to, to have a redo, I would have created a national communicators toolbox with all of the information, resources, templates, etc artwork all available imagery in there for people to use locally so they could localize it I think another thing I would have done is really try to marry up researchers with these communications teams so that we could have got the information required for understanding why science and evidence-based risk communications is so integral in times like this I mean what were we doing we were trying to get people to change behaviors right wear a mask wash your hands social distance now it's get a vaccine and, and many of the things that we're seeing, the communications materials, we ignored that or we 
because really, honestly, we weren't aware of it. We haven't been educated on it. We didn't marry the research with the communications. And so the communications wasn't as effective as it could have been from the onset. I really like that idea of marrying research with communications. I'm going to challenge you a little bit on uh, your toolbox idea. I mean, there was the World Health Organization pandemic toolbox. Uh, are tools enough? Like what, what needs to happen to take those tools out of the box? Well, I think they they have a great number of resources available to them. But you know what? People don't use them because they're not Canadian, right? They look nationally. They look local. They're looking for leadership from their governments. I'm not saying to reinvent the wheel because I'm the queen of leveraging. So I'm saying, you know, if there was opportunities in there. If it made sense locally, if that messaging made sense, then absolutely adopt the messaging and use it. And even today, I talked about sort of um, debunking myths and how we use the evidence-based science to actually get the right information in front of the vaccine-hesitant audiences. And and that was that's a World Health Organization resource that I put on my website for people today that has all the key messages and they've done all the work for you. So absolutely use that. But I guess what bothered me is initially even across Alberta or across Canada, we had all of these communities, local health authorities with um, no true resources, right? You got one person in there trying to manage everything and everyone was reinventing the wheel to a degree, right? Everyone was trying to find the gimmicky thing that would make people wash their hands or what have you. And I just thought, boy, if we could just consolidate and share and leverage, we would save people a lot of time and, and money for organizations that didn't have the funds to do this well. I want to ask you two things from that. One is around the gimmicks. I've noticed a couple of gimmicks that popped up for uh, campaigns around COVID. Uh, are they effective? Or maybe the better question is, when are they effective? And what are some of the uh, pitfalls to avoid there? I think, uh, I think with what we were doing here, if you're talking, if we think about Mr. COVID, the ads that we put out by the government of Alberta and here, do not get me wrong, I'm not poking anything at the government because I think they have done, you know, Dr. Dina Hinshaw and her team have done an amazing job. But to me, this demonstrated a, a lack of a bit of awareness on risk communications, right? So we had these ads come out around Christmas time. And these ads were put out in with a myth buster approach. But the thing when you are busting myths or doing myth buster approaching communications, you need to tell people the evidence based science behind why that's a myth. So you can't, it's not good enough to just say, don't do this, or, you know, don't drink bleach, you have to tell them why not to drink the bleach. And I think the challenge I have with the COVID commercials, personally, this is my personal take, is that they focused on every action that we did not want Albertans to take. No wearing of masks, no physical distancing, no staying at home with your family over the holidays. It was a disaster because, you know, I thought even if you wanted to use the scary COVID guy and you did a different creative approach, just imagine, you know, Mr. COVID's Uncle Mike's coming to the door and the family answers the door, the mom or the dad with a mask on and says, hey, Uncle Mike, for your safety and ours, we're not letting you in this Christmas. We, we kind of told you that. And and then goes and pivots and pans back to playing, um, having a whatever a zoom meeting i guess maybe with your grandparents and showing them opening presents playing games as a family in front of the fire and having a nice family christmas we were all in that reality 
And I felt that COVID just kind of was poking fun at our reality, Mr. Mr. COVID, because he wasn't, he was showing all the things we were missing. So he was debunking this, showing this myth, but not debunking it by telling us what we needed to do. We were all in it together. We were all experiencing, you know, different, we were lacking in what was going on for our Christmas celebrations, our normal routines for Christmas. We were all a little sad. And I felt that this commercial did nothing to support us. And in that way, it just highlighted everything we missed over the holidays. It didn't teach anyone any actions to take. And I personally thought that it was an epic fail. I think I have to agree with you on that one as someone who lives in Alberta and saw this, frankly, quite horrifying mascot for COVID. Um, I, I can't help but wonder if uh, maybe it was a little insensitive as well, you know, basically using humor in a situation that did not call for it. It's tempting sometimes to try and find a silver lining or a humorous way to address a, a complex problem but when it's happening and when people are dying and when things yes. just suck it's really harmful to to try and find a joke or talk about uh, something in a lighthearted way uh, and it is okay to just let things suck um, I, I'll say to you that one of the I really thought New Zealand did an excellent job with some of the approaches they took and and they had some videos that injected a bit of humor the the All Blacks video is awesome they have the rugby players talking about saying don't be an idiot you know stay home someone else saying don't steal all the toilet paper nobody likes that guy like it, I mean that kind of humor because we were, were kind of talking about it but they also did a lot on the community space so how fun would it have been if we had said hey Christmas is going to look a little different this year send us in your video of what you're doing and let's share it. Let's share it across the province. Let's see what the folks in White Court are doing, you know, compared to the folks in, you know, down in Medicine Hat. Let's do something provincially where we actually engaged the community and encouraged them to share what they were doing so that we did truly walk away thinking, yeah, you know what, we are all in this together. The other question I wanted to ask you was uh, something you said about recreating the wheel. Uh, I sometimes hear emergency managers saying, why couldn't we just follow the plan? And I think maybe the question or the, uh, the issue isn't about following plans because plans don't solve emergencies, people do. And if the people managing the emergency weren't involved in the initial creation of the plan, then it's not their plan and it's not something that could ever follow. So is it truly a bad thing that people are rediscovering or reinventing processes in real time during disaster? Or is there a way to follow a plan? I think in any emergency management situation, you have to be agile, flexible. You've got to be like the Gumby, right? You have to, every, every emergency is different. The plan is not prescriptive. The plan is a guideline, in my opinion. At least when I'm thinking about crisis communications, your plan, you know, you're not going to follow it exactly. It's there as a guide. It's there as a starting point for you. I mean, I, I think I read an article, um, I want to say it was in Massachusetts, I think, in the states in the U.S., where they had a, a vaccination rollout plan that they had been developing for 20 years. And then they turned around and pivoted and they hired a private guy to distribute the vaccine. Like they just threw it out the window. But what you said makes sense. They that new group, that leadership, they didn't own that plan. It maybe for 20 years they did a tabletop exercise for 19 of them and said, Oh yeah, it's good enough. Check in the box, we're good to go. But when when the rubber hit the road and they had to make decisions about it, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't really like how this looks. This isn't reflective. This isn't what we need. And they rewrote it. They actually charged someone else to, to take on the task. 
I think that you need a plan to give you uh, guidance to focus your efforts initially, but I think you have to be open uh, to all those perspectives on your team and that coming together of finding a better way to do it. You know, what you have in the plan may be a good process, but what you come up with as your team may knock it out of the park. So know the plan and know when not to follow the plan. And know when to augment the plan, I would there say. You go. I like that. So what's the solution here? What does Canada look like in 20 years when we're resilient and have robust crisis communication uh, technologies and teams and, and plans? Well, the first step to getting to finding those resilient teams, and that is getting a national training program in place for Canada. I mean, in the US and FEMA, we have they have courses that are run, they run the public information officer courses, they run the all hazards. I've I've co taught that at Nate for the all hazards incident management academy they had. Um, I've taken those ICS courses or PIO courses through the US through my army training. But the reality is, in Canada, most of that you have to seek out with People like me, they're consulting in this space because we don't offer it nationally anymore. Um, even provincially, we're challenged with it right now. I mean, we're getting there with ICS Canada, but it's taking a long time. So the only reason I say that is because we actually have courses for the scribes. God bless the scribes. We need them. Absolutely. They're the glue that keep everyone on target, right, with the information in your EOC or your ECC. But we don't have a course for public information officers, right? And so every AAR, we pick up. Everyone you pick up, I can guarantee you, I can put money on it. There's a line in there that says communications could have been improved. And we're not just talking interoperational communications, which is another thing where we're, our radios don't all talk to one another, that type of thing. We're talking just internal and external comms is always a challenge. Oh, we didn't get to the public messaging fast enough. Oh, we didn't, we didn't get this out to the public, you know, in, you know, in the means that they wanted with the right mediums. Every AAR but we don't seem to learn the lesson. So Nate's doing a great job by rolling out these courses through CADEM uh, in the absence of there being something nationally available. So let's get everyone trained who needs to be trained to support the, the emergency managers in these communities, step one. And then we can start building resilient communities with communications. But right now we need, we have a big void. We have to fill that void. So what I hope for in 20 years, training for everyone. Oh, and everyone has a training. If there was an upside to COVID, which I can't think of one, but if there was, I would say to you, it's the fact that our emergency manager profession has recognized the absolute need for communications in every phase of the pandemic, uh, just like we needed in every phase of a program for emergency management. It has been a solidifying time for comms. And that's, in my mind, something that we can take forward into the next 20 years. Well, I'm hoping that we can keep this momentum going. And in the interest of clear communications, Nate is the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology and Katem is the Center for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management at Nate. They were both involved in the conference that Shauna was just speaking at. Shauna Bruce, thank you so much for joining us on this epic podcast. And I really hope to continue to work with you in the future towards a more resilient and better communicated uh, disaster management system in Canada. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Well, that was a great conversation, Grayson. I think it really highlights the importance of how we view communications 
uh, within operations. And it really is a uh, important objective in its own right, in the sense that communications historically might have been seen as a bit of an afterthought, as in that operations does their work and then somebody communicates it about it you know, later. I really like this idea of thinking of comms up front. Maybe that should be a new uh, adage. Uh, we, we talked about demob begins on you know day one, and uh, maybe that's you know communication should be uh, right at the at the front of our uh, thoughts as well at the early stages of a deployment. Yeah, and, and personally, I've had a little bit of experience with both sides of the coin. A lot of the initiatives I've worked on during COVID uh, either had a embedded comms person because it was so much to do with policy and procedure and risk communication. Or on the flip side, had a comms person attached afterwards. And I, I have to say, the times where it was attached afterwards, it basically doubled the time it took to get the message out because they weren't aware of, of all of the the different nuances. And we had to basically teach them uh, what we were doing, whereas if we brought them in the beginning, they'd, they'd be in the know. Yeah, it may seem obvious to everybody listening to the show that crisis communications is different than normal communications. But institutionally, I don't think that's necessarily an understood concept. And you see a lot of organizations, especially in the private sector, assume that their normal, you know, communication mm-hmm. staff, PR staff are are somehow already equipped to operate in a crisis setting and that the same tools are going to be effective. And that's just not the case. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier when we were preparing for the show about the Maple Leaf Foods example as being a, a turning point in crisis communications as a case study for uh, demonstrating the difference from uh, how an organization responds during, you know, routine operations versus a, a, a true crisis. And maybe I can flip this on its head as well. We're saying that communications need to be part of operations, but perhaps in in some circumstances, operations needs to be part of communications or have that training themselves. One example I can think of early on in COVID, uh, we were having a a huge problem getting appropriate signage and um, poster messaging out. And there was a big bottleneck at comms because we'd send all the the information to comms and then it'd be up to them to create a poster um, using the right graphics and that sort of thing. After not very long, they flipped it around and they said, this is how you make a poster, go, (laughs) because there was just too much to do. So training ops to be part of comms, uh, I think was an effective tool there. Yeah, you make you make a good point, and uh, really, this uh, is a skill set that every emergency manager needs to have some basic competence in. Uh, crisis communications is an expertise, you know, in its own right. So uh, we all can't be masters of this, but I think it really is a, a basic, uh, um, you know, JPR for any emergency manager or disaster responder. And if you're trying to build your skill set in crisis communications, well, one of the tools that Shauna mentioned was the message map. Now, she mentioned Vincent Cavello, and I'll drop a link in the show notes to his guide to a message map. It's an excellent document, and there are definitely different versions out there. But the basic concept is that you pick your concern. And this is actually trickier than it it seems. Uh, It's basically like identifying your project problem or the core problem uh, that you're trying to address. And then you come up with three or four different ways to address that key concern. And for each way or each example that you're using, you come up with three or four supporting facts. Then you can hand that out as a key message sheet. You can use it to communicate 
in public communications or in written communications or in ongoing communications with with stakeholders and it's basically a play sheet that everyone can work from it's an incredibly effective tool i've used this personally on several deployments even for addressing staff and it can keep you on message all the time and come across as that unified message um, from all aspects of the organization yeah, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned both internal and external communications. We often conflate, and maybe as non-professional you know professional communicators, conflate some of the concepts of media relations, PR, crisis communications. I think it's important to really understand the, the nuances there. And a lot of these communication strategies work just as well internally uh, and, you know, when you're trying to manage up as they do uh, to external stakeholders. And, you know, this really fits into what we've been talking about all EP week already is that Emergency Preparedness Week is not a marketing campaign. It's about doing something. And and I think Shauna really hit it on the head is that communications isn't about PR. It isn't about marketing. It is operations. It needs to be its own objective. And communication should motivate action, not get you likes on Facebook. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's uh, super important. And and when done properly, uh, you know, expert communications probably uh, can save more lives than mm-hmm. any amount of, you know, boots on the ground uh, uh, activity, uh, you know, as much as uh, we might be more operations oriented in the traditional sense. Uh, this really is what makes the most impact at a, at a major event. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Shauna Bruce for sharing her time and expertise with us on the topic of crisis comms. As a quick reminder, this episode is part of our ongoing Emergency Preparedness Week Blitz. So stay tuned for more podcasts each day of this year's Emergency Preparedness Week. Thanks for listening. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Whether someone is battling depression, fleeing domestic abuse, or worried about putting food on the table, it's times like these that inspire people to help others during a period of unprecedented need. The Calgary Foundation is here to help. Through the generous support of donors, the foundation offers a wide range of funding opportunities for organizations who share a common goal of building a healthy, giving, caring, and resilient community, one where everyone thrives. If you're part of a registered charity looking for a grant, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about the Calgary Foundation on their Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. This episode of Epic Podcast is brought to you by Shift by Alberta Innovates. Our province is a hotbed of innovation. Now in season two, Shift's hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen put the spotlight on Alberta innovators working to improve the world one ripple at a time. Here's a taste of the Shift podcast by Alberta Innovates. Make Shift by Alberta Innovates your next podcast binge. Join us as we take a deep dive with the people that are driving Alberta's 21st century economy. These global movers and shakers are working to solve today's challenges, create new opportunities, and build a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future for Albertans today and for generations to come. Just when you think you know all about Alberta, we're here to shift your perspective. I don't know if I could stress this enough. We have a top three institution in arguably the most important technology in the entire world right now. We will prove a lot of people wrong by coming out of this even stronger. And the way we will do it is by finding ways to help businesses be cash flow positive and by willing to you know, find the ways that we can help. We're just starting to scratch the surface. I mean, Calgary just this uh, last month 
announced the fact that they broke their record again for venture capital investment. And some of this is in fintech, some of this is in a whole bunch of different areas where we originally didn't even you know, have these types of core industries in Alberta. We have diversification in our DNA. We just have forgotten about it. Sincerely, we are blessed in Alberta to have all the infrastructure that we do have. Tune into Shift by visiting shift.albertainnovates.ca or your favorite podcast app. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.